You know, it's a good and a glorious thing to have the assurance within your heart that you're marching to Zion, the beautiful city of God. W.P. Nicholas, the great evangelist, on one occasion was with a group of people out in the open air. And they were singing that hymn, A Day's March Near Home. And Nicholas could be very abrupt in his manner and his methods. And he went over and he grabbed a mic and he shouted out, guldered out at the top of his voice, you're maybe a day's march near hell rather than heaven. And he really let fly. And the people were taken back just at his abruptness. But there was a man passing by, an old man, unsaved. And he realized he was a day's march not near to heaven, but a day's march near hell. And that old man, through that incident, got wonderfully saved and came to know the Lord. And it's good to have assurance in your heart that you're a day's march near heaven and home. And could I just take a moment or two to just pause and introduce the book again, Be My Daddy, A Story of Compassion and Rescue. And it's really based on what happened in one of the orphanages Little boy came up, took me by the hand, and he looked into my face and through a translator, he said, will you be my daddy? Would you be my daddy? And just pleading for someone to be his daddy. And of course, that's the heart cry, not only of orphans in Romania, but throughout the world. And uh, it's really a storytelling, a book giving the story of how we got involved in this work and how that God moves in wonderful ways. And when we went out to Romania 24 years ago after the fall of Ceausescu and communism, and I said to Brother Tom Lewis, who was uh, responsible for the group and where they went, I said, Tom, I don't want to go to all the big meetings with Dr. Paisley. I can hear him back home, but I want to meet some of the underground pastors who have suffered so much. And I was introduced to Pastor Grosso, I think it was the first uh, visitor outside the country to speak in his church. And we met up there and we went to one of the orphanages at Rakash. And there was the little boys there. And what a place it was at that time. It's greatly improved now. But they were all there with their heads shaven. And the reason why you see the orphans like that is to keep down the lice and to that kind of thing. And um, as you would say in Belfast, that neither in them or on them. But to our surprise, uh, the Queen Doral, the man who works among the children, he got them to sing. And they started to sing, I will make you fishers of men in English. And as we were standing there listening to the children singing in English, and the boys were really singing their hearts out, uh, there wasn't a dry eye among those men, we were all greatly moved. And Eugene said to me, he said, you know, these boys have had a terrible disappointment. I said, why, what's happened? He said, well, there was a group came through here and they promised the children a holiday in America and they were going to send for them. But when they got all the film and the footage and all that they wanted for their uh, programs back home, we never heard from them again. And the children were wondering, when are we going to go on this holiday? And I thought to myself, that was a terrible thing to happen. Never promise a child anything unless you promise, uh, unless you're going to keep your word. And so I looked at Eugene and I said, you know, Eugene, uh, 
Ulster is not America. It's far better. They've only got Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck over there. And, but we've got a great wee country, and I would love to invite the children to come. And when I look back, you know, I, I, you take steps of faith, and I wondered afterwards, what have I done here? And to invite these children, orphans from the other side of the world, and what are we going to do, and where are we going to put them? But, you know, the church in Hillsborough really rose to the occasion, and every room became a bedroom, and we invited the children, and they came, and they've had a wonderful holiday. And uh, then building the church out there in Timishwara, Brother Graham was out with us doing the electrical work, and we owed a great debt to him. And to see that church going up and pack the capacity and to see souls getting saved on a regular basis. And the extension works, about 30 of them from that church. The other little churches have started throughout the our countryside and to realize what God is doing in that country. And could I just say that as you read this story, you'll smile. It'll make you laugh on some occasions, but I trust it will. It'll make you cry, but most of all, it'll make you thank God uh, for what's happening through this ministry. And uh, all the proceeds of the book go entirely towards the work. I don't get anything out of this. Spent days, nights, hours working at this, along with Brother Victor Maxwell. And this photograph here is of little Serena, and she was, I think, the first to be brought into Deborah House. She couldn't speak. It's not that she hadn't the ability, but she was so traumatized. She was brought in. Her head was full of scars and cuts, bruises, and she had been so badly beaten. And communism is a terrible thing with alcoholism and morality and so on. And she was brought into the home. Today, she's a lovely young lady of 18 years of age, baptized believer, going on well with the Lord. And, you know, that's what it's all about in the end. Because in the end of the day, just to feed them and clothe them and to give them a good home, and then for those children to be lost, that would be the greatest tragedy and disappointment of all. But to see these girls saved, rescued uh, from within a yard of hell, and to see the change that God has made, to their lives and some of their testimonies is in the book and uh, one other girl came from a very sad abuse situation today she's studying to be a doctor and a lovely christian girl and this is what the lord has done so do get a copy remember it's to support the work of god out in romania and the lord will bless you and do you good. And don't worry if they're all sold out. Have a couple of boxes more in the boot. We've published 2,000 of them. I think we've something like uh, 1,700 circulating at the moment. And there's always the tail ends, the hardest ones to move. And so do remember the book. And above all, pray for these children. Some of you have been asking me if I passed a grocery. I've been very ill. He took uh, growths on the liver, cancerous, had to have major surgery, thought they were going to have to do a liver transplant. Uh, but he went to Fianna, had surgery, had the growth removed, a large growth. And I was speaking to him yesterday, and he's making good progress. And we really thought we were going to lose him. He had been so ill, 
hasn't been able to preach for several months and just been so ill and it was good to talk to him yesterday on the phone so do continue to pray for him that the lord will be with him and that the lord will bless him let's pray together in a short word of prayer as we look to the lord for his blessing on the reading of the scriptures of truth and upon the preaching of his word this morning father in heaven we thank you lord this morning that we can sing with the hymn writer i am so glad that jesus loves me we thank you lord that paul could say the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me. And we pray, Lord, that you'll help us today as we come to thy word to treat it with holy reverence. Lord, realizing afresh that the Bible is the voice of him that sitteth upon the throne of heaven. And Lord, we would cry with the psalmist this morning, Open thou mine eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of thy law. Lord, prayer would be, speak, Lord, for thy servant heareth. So, Lord, bless your word and help us now, we pray, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I'd like to turn with me, please, to the book of Psalms, in Psalm 119. And we want to read together just a short section of this psalm. <clears throat> the psalm number 119 and the verse 105. Psalm 119, beginning to read it, the verse 105. And the psalmist said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. I have sworn, and I will perform it, that I will keep thy righteous judgments. I am afflicted very much. Quicken me, O Lord, according unto thy word except i beseech thee the free will offering of my mouth o lord and teach me thy judgments my soul is continually in my hand <clears throat> yet do not i forget thy law the wicked have laid a snare for me yet i erred not from thy precepts thy testimonies have I taken as an heritage forever, for they are the rejoicing of my heart. I have inclined mine heart to perform thy statutes alway, even unto the end. Melinda reading there, verse 112, and we know God will add his own blessing to the reading of his own infallible word. As you read through the word of God in the Psalms, you will discover that there are different kinds of psalms. We have what we call historical psalms. They are psalms that take us into the past, deal mainly with the life and times of David, the man after God's own heart. When you read a psalm like 71 or like 51, that is a penitential psalm, it takes us back into that dark moment, that dark hour in David's life, when David sinned grievously against the Lord. You do have these historical psalms. Then you have, on the other extreme, uh, psalms that are prophetical psalms. They don't deal with the past, but rather, David, speaking under divine inspiration, deals with things yet to come. You'll remember, for example, we have that tremendous psalm, the psalm number 
22, that begins with the words, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And of course that wasn't fulfilled in the life of David, for David could say, I have been young and I am old, yet have I not seen the righteous forsaken, neither has said begging bread. For those words were prophetical, taking us to the foot of the cross, when we have there Emmanuel's orphan cry, the cry of the Lord Jesus, when he cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When he had made his soul an offering unto God for sin. And so you have these historical psalms, you have prophetical psalms, and then you have another group of psalms that are known as devotional psalms. And these are psalms of worship, of praise, of celebration, of thanksgiving unto the Lord. And as you look at this Psalm 119, it's really a devotional psalm, when David, the man after God's own heart, whose delight was in the law of the Lord, and in his law did he meditate day and night, as shares with us in every verse, except to some reason why uh, we should thank God for his word. The great theme of this psalm is the word of God itself, and David is sharing with us what the word of God meant to him. Now, when you look there in verse 105, you'll find the words of our text this morning. And here David is using one of several images or metaphors or symbols that he uses throughout the psalm, telling us what the word of God means to him. And in this verse, David uses a symbol or an image that everyone would have immediately recognized and understood when David said, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And of course you'll recall that in David's day, and indeed in the days of our Lord Jesus Christ, that people for light would use lamps. There was no such a thing as the blessing of electricity in those days. No such a thing as instant light. And if you wanted to have light uh, to light your home, uh, you had to have a lamp and you had to prepare the lamp, put oil in the lamp and uh, prepare the wick and so on. And then you had to light uh, the lamp. And even today, if you go to Israel and you visit some of the wonderful museums I have there, you'll find that they have displays of all kinds of lamps that were used in biblical times. And so this was a very familiar image when David, uh, speaking of the word of God, he testifies and he says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And I want to consider three different ways in which God's word is a lamp. And the first thing is this, that God's word is a gospel lamp. Never forget that, that first and foremost, primarily, God's word is a gospel lamp. Now, let me say this this morning, that the Bible is also a book of science, and through science, 
and the Bible will never be in contrast in one to the other. Both are given by God and are in perfect harmony. But let me make this clear that God didn't give us the Bible to be a scientific textbook, but rather God gave us his word to show us the way of salvation, to answer the greatest question that a man or woman can ever ask, what must I do to be saved? And the answer is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. God's word is a gospel lamb. And it's so important to remember that, that it's not given to answer the questions of our idle uh, curiosity or foolish imagination or depravity, but rather it's given to us to show us God's highway to heaven. You know, I think of a dear man, he worked for the council, he was a road a sweeper, and he was out, he was a Roman Catholic, and he was out brushing the road, and as he was brushing the road, he happened to look down, and he noticed this piece of paper that, well, it was different, and he picked it up, and he looked at it, and he realized, as a Roman Catholic, that this is a page from the, the book that they call the Protestant Bible, and he lifted it, and he began to read it, and it was actually half a page of John chapter 3, the story of Nicodemus, and he stood there, and he read it, but when it came to verse 16, the greatest verse in the Bible, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that verse was cut in two at the words, for God so loved that he gave. And he wondered what it was that this God gave, because in the Roman Catholic Church, uh, you don't have a God who gives, you have a God who takes. You have to, it's a pay religion. You pay from the moment you're born and they pay even after you're dead to get your soul out of purgatory. And the idea of a God who gives was foreign to his mind. And so he folded it up and he put it into his pocket and he went home and he, after tea, said, Mary, you'll never guess what I found. And he took it out and he began to share it with his, his wife. And he says, I wonder what it was that God gave. And somehow they were able to get in contact with a Christian and they got a Bible and they got the whole verse. And they read the marvelous story. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And that verse became a gospel lamp a gospel light to their souls and they were translated out of darkness into the light of the glorious gospel and they came to know Jesus Christ as their saviour. I wonder my speaking to Annie in the meeting this morning and you're here and you're not saved and you're on the broad road and you're a Protestant brought up in the ways of God and taught the truths of the gospel since your childhood. And yet if you were to die tonight, you'd be spending your first night in a lost, Christless hell. Oh, the tragedy of Roman Catholics getting saved and Protestants who have had the Bible for so long. 
going on in their sin and rejecting the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the Bible is a gospel lamp to show us the way of salvation. Paul was able to say to Timothy, Timothy, from a child, and maybe God can say this to you this morning, sister, brother in the meeting, from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures that are able to make you wise on the salvation. Not enough to know it, but you've got to accept it. You've got to embrace Christ and ask him into your heart to be your saviour. So God's word is a gospel lamp. Then it's important to realize after you're saved that God wants you to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and that God's word is a spiritual lamp. It's the rule that God has given to us to show us how we ought to live. David says here, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And the pathway that the Christian is called to live is given in the word of God. You see, in Bible days, if a man had a servant or a son, and he was going out into the darkness of the night, somewhere in the village or the city, there's no such a thing as lampposts, as we've said, electricity wasn't known. And so what they would do is they would, the servant would get the lamp and he would light it. And then as they were walking down the road, the servant would walk in such a way before his master stooped over that the light would shine in the path. And it would meant if there was any stones or any debris or anything that his master could trip over, it was highlighted, it was seen. And it could be avoided. And this is the imagery here that the Holy Spirit uses of the word of God. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet. It's a light, it's a light onto our feet to show us the pitfalls that can befall us in life and that we might live a straight path and walk circumspectly for the Lord. Now, if God's word is going to be a lamp onto your feet and a light onto your path. There's three things you've got to do with it. The first thing is this. You've got to look it up and you've got to read the Bible. Got to look it up and you've got to read it. No, it's amazing how many Christians today don't even read the Bible, don't even bring a Bible to the house of God. And many Christians just take the Bible and put it into the back of the car and it's hardly consulted from one Sunday to another. And that's a tragedy. I know of a minister, I and mean, when he was visiting a house or a home, in his pastoral visitation, he would deliberately leave his Bible in the car. And he would go into the house, and he would talk in conversation. And then he would say, oh, I've left my Bible in my car. Would you have a Bible I could borrow, please? And he was testing them to see if they knew where their Bible was or if they had a Bible. He went into this house on one occasion, and after they'd spoken a while and brought it round to spiritual conversation, he said, oh, I've left my Bible in the car. Would you have a Bible I could borrow? And the lady of the house, and you know that telephone voice they can put on for the minister, 
Oh, she says, yes, she says, we have plenty of Bibles in our house. And she said there, we girl, Pat, darling, go into the front room there and get that big book Mammy's always reading. And the wee girl ran into the front room and she came out and there was a big book nearly as big as herself. You know what it was? A case catalogue. <laughs> Talk about be sure your sin will find you out. And you know, that's the tragedy. We can read books about the Bible. We can read magazines. We can read our papers. But do we read the word of God? Blessed is he that readeth the words of this book. Even in the book of the Revelation, people say that's the hardest book of the Bible and it is a difficult book, but it's a book with a blessing. God says if you read it, if you study it, he'll bless you. And it's full of Christ and all his risen glory. And so we need to look it up. How much time do you spend as a Christian? reading the word of God. You know, and I say this, my own heart, my own home, the curse today is television. We can sit and watch our programs for two or three hours and then we've no appetite. And we can go to bed without even opening our Bibles. That's a tragedy. Begin and end the day with the word of God. I knew a missionary and they had the rule in the morning, no Bible, no breakfast, no Bible, no breakfast. I haven't time to read my Bible, then I haven't time to eat my breakfast. And they would rather do without their breakfast than do without their Bible. And what a change it would make to your life and to mine. You've got to look it up. And then you've got to let it in. You see, in this same psalm and earlier, David said here, Thy word have I hid in my heart. In verse 11, that I might not sin against thee. And David says you're not only to look it up, but you're to let it in. And the word head there means to store up, to treasure, to have the word of God within your heart like a storehouse. And so you need not only to look it up, but you need to let it in. And if you're going to live a holy life, and the life that worships God in the beauty of holiness and commends Christ, Two others, you've got to learn to let it in. I remember one time I was preaching down in Macrofeld for the Reverend William McRae. And afterwards we went for dinner to Barry Stewart's home, one of the elders. Him and Ruth, his wife, were a lovely couple, very committed Christians. And we had a lovely dinner. Then afterwards we sat down there. You know what you feel like an afternoon nap? Barry said, I've got to go out, Mr. Barnes, to uh, do a bit of redding up. Now, you farmers would know all about the redding up, wouldn't you? Things that needed to be done. And I said, Barry, if you don't mind, I'll come with you. And a uh, bit of exercise and fresh air will do me good. And so I went out with him, followed him out into the farmyard. And always remembered for two things. The first one is this. He came to this big field and there was a bull in the middle of the field. And Barry threw the leg over the gate and he said, he'd come on ahead, he'll not harm you, he's very quiet. I could see the old bull looking at me, saying, come on, I love we chubby free Presbyterian ministers, just you come on to introduce myself. And I said to myself, no, sir, and I just stayed the other side of the gate. See, I may be Belfast, but I'm not stupid altogether. 
I stayed where I was. Then Barry, after he had finished, I think he was putting some water in the tank or something for the food, but whenever he had finished what he was doing, he came back and he took me over to the milking parlour. Now, I'm a real tidy. I know nothing about milking, about cows or anything else. And uh, there wasn't a cow about the place. He got the big holes and he was spraying water everywhere. You know, water was just being plastered everywhere and all over the place. I said, Barry, what do you do that for? Well, he says, you know, we're bringing the cows in. And when you do that, it insulates uh, the whole place. And whenever the cows do whatever they have to do, and I'm not going into the tactical details, but he says it saves it all from sticking and from clinging, and it helps keep the place clean. And you know, as I thought of that, it was just like a parable to my heart. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And that's why we need to read God's word and let it into our hearts. And it will insulate us against the world. And as Martin Luther said, you can't stop a bird from flying over your head, but you can stop it from building a nest. And you can't stop on clean thoughts coming by the fiery darts of the devil, but you can quench them. And the word of God, take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, and when you're tempted, or the devil brings something unclean to your mind, thy word have I hid in my heart. You answer the devil by the precious word of God. Take time to look it up. Take time to live it out. And I'll tell you something else. If God's word is going to be a lamp onto your feet and a light onto your path, you need to live it out, Christian. You need to live it out. By that I mean the word has to become flesh in our lives. Paul says, ye are epistles, read and known of all men. And I love that verse. To me, it's one of the greatest verses in the whole of the Bible in First John or in John chapter 1, and John says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And here's Christ, the eternal Word, and yet that Word became flesh. Christ became a human being in the virgin's womb, and the Word of God became flesh, and the living Word became the incarnate Word. And Christian, that's what the world needs to see, the word becoming flesh. We're not only to be hearers of the word, but we're to be doers of the word. And that's the tragedy so often where we fall short. You know, it's not always easy to put into practice what God says in his word. Very often it goes the wrong way. And it's not easy to forgive, for example. Be ye tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Do you know one of the hardest things to do is to forgive another Christian who has wronged you, to turn the other cheek to a brother and sister in the Lord? I was reading that story of Curry Ten Boom recently, and how they were used by God to rescue the Jews, many Jewish families from those terrible prison camps. But eventually they were betrayed by a neighbour 
And Curry and her sister and her family were taken into these terrible concentration camps. One day, Curry was with her sister, her oldest sister, and Curry was the youngest one. And a woman officer, prison guard, came along with a large whip, terrible handle, butt on it. And for no reason, she just took it and smashed it into the face of Curry's sister. Knocked her to the ground, blood was coming out of her mouth. And Curry clenched her fist, and full of temper and anger and rage, she was about to strike out. And her sister grabbed her by the hand and said, Curry, don't look at the wound, look to Jesus. Curry, don't look at the wound, look to Jesus. There was a tremendous <coughs> lesson unforgiveness and so often we look at the wound what people said what people have done and so on and we forget that the one who died on the cross his first cry was not for himself but for others father forgive them learn to forgive as a christian don't let bitterness take over in your life because it'll become a giant that'll destroy you in the end. But one last thought, and it's this. God's word is not only a gospel lamp and a spiritual lamp, but it's a prophetical lamp. It's a prophetical lamp. I mean by that that the Bible is the only book that stakes its divinity upon Bible prophecy. And as you read the Bible prophecies, you'll find that there's four great, rivers of prophecy in the Bible. Prophecies concerning uh, the Jews, prophecies concerning the Gentiles, prophecies concerning the church, the bride of Christ, but most of all and paramount, prophecies concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And from Genesis right through the word of God, we find in the Old Testament Jesus says, search the scriptures, for they they are which testify of me. And you look at the prophecies and you'll find that our Lord's whole life, from his birth in Bethlehem to his death on the cross and his resurrection, is all foretold and foreshadowed in the Old Testament scriptures. It is there that we see Jesus. Bible prophecy. That's one of the great ways that we know that the Lord Jesus is the Son of God and that the Bible is true. Bible prophecy confirms the Scriptures to be the inspired Word of God. You know, one of the great prophecies concerning Christ is that He's coming again. When you read from Genesis to Malachi, the message is this, He is coming then Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he has come. And then from the Acts to the book of the Revelation, this same Jesus shall come again. Jesus is coming again. I'll never forget, on one occasion I was asked to do a funeral. It's a dear old lady in our McMurrian church had died, Granny Ferguson. Church was faking, and I was asked for to step in to do Granny Ferguson's funeral. And I said, I would. 
His grannies wished that uh, the gospel would be preached at the graveside. They just had a service in the home, and then they went straight to the graveyard. And when I got there, actually it wasn't very far from here. Uh, it was a graveyard of another denomination. And this big tall minister met me. He said, nice to meet you, Mr. Bonds. And he said, now we'll get this over as quickly as we can. And he said, you uh, read a few verses and I'll do a committal and the benediction. And I'll do, we'll get it over as quick as we can. And I said to myself, boy, you're in for a course shock when you hand over to me here. So he handed over and I just very politely said it was Granny Ferguson's wish that I would preach the gospel at the graveside. I didn't go on all day. You can say in less than 10 minutes what needs to be said. So I just give a straightforward, simple gospel challenge. Well, the man was hopping mad, and if it had been possible, he would have shoved me into the grave as well. And after the funeral, he just stormed out, never shook hands, never spoke, and he just slept. So I'm standing there. Didn't upset me one iota. But I went for a wee walk around that graveyard. And I discovered this, that many of the converts of the 1859 revival, when 100,000 souls or more were swept into the kingdom of God, were buried in that graveyard. And one of the graves that had a unique memorial, it was a pillar with a hand, with a finger pointing towards the sky. And underneath were the words, the sky, not the grave is our goal. What a testimony in death. That when Jesus comes and the dead and Christ shall rise first and we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together to be forever with the Lord. And that's the testimony of every believer from God's word which is a prophetical lamp reminding us that our hope is in Christ, and we're looking for his great appearing. Jesus Christ is coming again. And that's why we sorrow not as those who have no hope. When a loved one is taken, the separation is only till he come, and we'll be united with them, and most of all with Christ around the throne of God for all eternity. What a day, hallelujah. What a day that will be. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. May God help us, like David, to rejoice in God's word as one that findeth great spoil.